Men, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. The words will also be up on the screen as well. We are going through Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, and we'll read some of those passages as we go throughout our time together in the Word this morning. Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse 9. This is following uh, the ministry happening in, the, in, in Samaria as the gospel is proclaimed after the people of God are scattered on account of persecution. And then now Luke focuses on Philip, Philip, not the apostle, Philip the deacon. And we also have a brief introduction to another character here in this section, Acts chapter 8, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they relieved Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, the magician, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we desire to give attention to your word this morning. Father, whatever, whatever distractions may come upon our minds, including my own, Lord, help us to cast them aside. For your word deserves our attention. For in your word there is life. We please, Lord, to help us, to encourage us as we consider your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Do you remember your sense of childlike wonder? The things that animated you, the things that you were energized about, the things that really captured your attention. Right? If you could put your sense of wonder to a gauge with a needle, what were those things that would set the needle off wildly? Just yesterday, we were, my family and I were at a park, and then my children's attention was caught by a squirrel. Like, hey, look, it's a squirrel. Right? There's, it's a sense of wonder. Their, their, their gauge was immediately was immediately regist- was, was registering this little creature, which to most of us doesn't even register in our cage. But I do wonder, what does it take to set that needle going in your gauge of sense of wonder? And what is it? Is it profitable things? Is it wonderful things? Is it encouraging things? Is it new and shiny things? Are some of those things perhaps even harmful, or some of those things perhaps ruinous. Because there are some things that set off that gauge, and there are some things that don't set off that gauge, and there are some things that should set off the gauge that don't, and there are some things that, sh- that actually do set off the gauge and that shouldn't set off the gauge. This morning we're considering our sense of wonder and even its relation to conversion. And believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That takes us to our first heading, which is captive to wonder. Down in verse 9, tells us there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Even saying that he himself was somebody great, and they all paid attention to Simon from the least to the greatest. Everyone from all walks of life paid attention to this man and were bedazzled by Simon. And they were even saying, this man is the power of God that is called great, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So you see, Luke continues to follow then Philip, and Philip enters, enters this particular city in Samaria, and we come across Simon Magus, or Magus, as he's come to be known throughout church history, Simon the magician, and he's bedazzling the people. They're amazed. And then we get to verse 12, but, but when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news, something happened here. The people who were once amazed by the magic arts, the sorcery of Simon, that spell is broken by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think we see here something about the human condition. And that is that we're constantly after the things that are bedazzling. We see something that captures the imagination, the attention, we immediately gravitate towards it. I'm not saying it's bad or right, or good or wrong, whatever. It's just natural for us as human beings to be bedazzled by things that are new and shiny. But there are some things that become quite boring to us, as wonderful as it once was for us before. I can't remember the, the show or the movie, I think it was like Peter Rabbit or something, and in it you have a, a scene where you have the rooster and the sun is rising and it, 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 it does its thing, 
But the rooster is actually, it's talking rooster, which is wonderful enough. But the rooster is talking, and it says, wow, it's amazing. The, the sun has risen again. I closed my eyes the night before, and I thought, this is it. It's over. And to my surprise, the sun has risen again. Right, too. And it's, and it's comical. It's comical to this talking rooster. It's comical because of his reaction to a sun rising in the morning, something that you and I come to expect on a regular basis. And perhaps at one time thought it wonderful, and now it's not so much anymore. In John chapter 6, the people of God, or not the people of God, but those who were following Jesus, the recipients of a wonderful miracle, Jesus miraculously provided food for all of them, thousands. And so they begin to follow Jesus. And then Jesus uses as a moment to teach them about himself. And then they begin to question Jesus. And so he followed you before because you probably did this miracle. And now you're saying you're this person. Well, then show us something. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. In a sense, they become bored with the other miracle, which was an amazing miracle in and of itself. They're saying, Jesus, we, well, we, if you're saying who you are, if you're saying that you are who you say you are, well, we've, we've kind of graduated from this particular miracle. Now you need to show us something different. You need to show us something better to prove to us that you are who you say you are. I mean, how easily we can become bored. And there are some things that we should be bored about. And there are some things that are not boring, but we do become bored over time. Many of you know that Apple recently released their Vision Pro, the set of goggles that shows augmented reality where you can see all these different screens at the same time, see the world at the same time. It's quite bedazzling. Right? And, and somebody had once said, well, for those who are now who, are, who, who, who love their phones or are addicted to their phones, now you can actually live in your phone. Because at the same time, you can pull up your social. You can put up your, your Facebook. You can put up. You can pull up at the same time uh, TikTok, which is the devil's social media, in my opinion. And you can also pull up YouTube, all at the same time, and at the same time, be able to see the world around you. I mean, they've even caught people driving with one of these things and getting pulled over. I mean, the kind of world that we are entering into. And the thing is, is that Apple is going to have to continue to share, put in updates and make it a little bit different. Why? Because we are easily bored. And so in order to keep their audience, they have to keep adding new things, make it better. Version 2, 3, 4, 5, 6.0, because we're easily bored. And what does boredom tell us about ourselves? The fact that we can be easily bored, what does it tell us? It tells us that we are always hungering for the spectacular. We're always desiring to be bedazzled, to be spellbound. And because we're easily bored, we are or we can have a tendency to be easily spellbound by anything and just everything. Whether it's a new shiny gadget, an update of something you already own, whether it's new or different, whether it adds any value or not to your life, whether it's good for you or bad for you, 
we're easily spellbound. In Galatians 3.1, the Apostle Paul lamented, saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. They've been bewitched. It's even possible to be bewitched out of the gospel and into, in their case, a different gospel that doesn't actually save, which is no gospel at all. 1 John 2.15 shows us the danger of this tendency that we have to be spellbound. It says there, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can consider sort of a, as a point of application, perhaps, that is recognize just how easily you and I are and being bedazzled by the things of the world. There's a caution here, a caution towards worldliness. That even ourselves, even as believers, we can be bewitched and bedazzled out of the gospel of Jesus Christ the new and shiny and the different things that the world has to offer. It is possible that we can become spellbound by the things of the world and less captive to the word of God and lose our sense of wonder for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to recognize that anything and everything has a potential to bewitch us. So a question you and I must ask ourselves is, am I spellbound? Am I currently spellbound by anything worldly? Have I been spellbound, bedazzled by sin, captured by anything that is unprofitable for me, anything that if I allow in my life to hold my attention for too long will bewitch me out of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That takes us to, secondly, the wondrous gospel. Again, the people were amazed by Simon and his magic and his sorcery, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs of great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is about the breaking of spells, drawing people from the world, drawing people away from the magic that Simon was performing in front of their eyes, and now becoming bedazzled by the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, there was signs and wonders that Philip was performing in the eyes of men and women, But that's not what broke the spell. What broke the spell is the fact that their sins can be forgiven. There's nothing more wonderful than that. Only that has the power to break whatever might have a spellbound in the world. John 4, 39 says, There are many Samaritans from that town believe in Jesus before, this was before Philip ever came to Samaria, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony, saying, he told me all that I ever did. 
Some of the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman, the Samaritan woman did not know that that day would change her life when she came to, to face-to-face with the Savior of the world. And it took a little convincing, but finally she was convinced. She was bedazzled by the person that was standing before her that she goes and tells the rest of the people in her town. And they are captivated enough to follow the woman and to go see for themselves. And they then come to the conclusion that this is the Son of God. We've been captivated by the person that we see and hear before our eyes. This is indeed the Savior of the world. A Christian is one whose mind and heart and very soul has been held captive to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 9, the man born blind, he has a sense of this wonder towards Jesus Christ. He's healed. He has his sight restored. At that point, he has no idea who healed him. He engages in the conversation with the religious teachers. And putting two and two together, he comes to the conclusion that this man is sent from God because otherwise, if he was a sinner like everyone else, God would not listen to him. But God did listen to him, and therefore now this man has his sight restored. And so then when Jesus finally comes and introduces himself to the man, he worships him. He's become captive to Jesus Christ. I think of Peter and his restoration. And thinking about that moment, we see their sense of the wonder of the love of Jesus Christ. Peter, who only moments ago had denied Jesus three times. Here's a man who's walked with Jesus for three years, was seen with Jesus for three years, and then at that moment of the crucifixion of Jesus, he abandons Jesus and denies ever knowing him three times. And then we see the love of Christ when Jesus is resurrected and calls his disciples to himself and he engages with Peter. And in that exchange about love, he's restoring Peter in effect, saying, all, all is forgiven. How can you not sense the wonder of Christ Jesus and his precious gospel? I want to take us back to Galatians. Paul says there, who has bewitched you? Who's bewitched you out of the gospel? So you'll no longer believe in the gospel. What's the problem here? Is, it the, pro- is the problem that the gospel has lost its, it lost its luster? Has it lost its shininess? Is it no longer valuable? Is it no longer worthy? That's not the problem. But it speaks more to the human condition. And again, as I said, that we have a tendency to be bewitched into other things, even away from things of great value and great worth. And so Paul's reaction is not exaggerated. How can you bewitch out of be bewitched out of the gospel, the gospel that saves you, the gospel where you see the love of Christ towards sinners? Nothing can replace that precious gospel. When I survey the wondrous cross 
on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain, I count all but loss. And sacrifice them too. His blood is a song that speaks of the wondrous gospel. It's a song that speaks to how amazing the gospel is that captures our attention. Why do people go to the Grand Canyon? They go to be bedazzled. They go to be amazed. They want to see something glorious here on this side of heaven. And so people will pay an incredible deal of money, and they will go, and they will watch, and they will sit, and they will stand, and they will eat there, and they they will take pictures, and they will take videos there, because they are absolutely amazed. Now, how many times will you have to go to the Grand Canyon to actually become bored? Is it 10 times? Is it 20 times? Is it 30, 40, 50? Is it 100 times? Maybe after the 100th time, you'll actually become bored. Now, if you actually do become bored, if a person actually becomes bored, even if you should go there 100 times and not be bored the first 99 times, what's the problem? Is it, is it the Grand Canyon? Has the Grand Canyon changed? Maybe a few rocks here and there have changed and have moved and shifted. But the Grand Canyon hasn't changed. And the problem is the person. Because they've become bored. They've been bored. The Grand Canyon is no longer amazing. It's no longer wonderful. Even though the Grand Canyon has not changed at all. Because we have a tendency to be easily bored and be bewitched by something else because we're always striving after something more glorious, something more amazing. So that if the Grand Canyon doesn't do it for you, that you might go look for something else that will do it for you. The gospel never loses its value. It never loses it's worth. How do you keep yourself from being spellbound by the things of the world? You continue to visit the Grand Canyon of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't get old. The gospel doesn't get boring. As Jesus captures us, captures our hearts, not by dramatics, not by theatrics, or these amazing things that you've never seen in the world. But he captures our attention through his love. It is that very love that captivated me when I first came to believe in Christ Jesus there in my parents' basement, a wayward sinner who has known and even would say and believed in his heart that Jesus is in fact real and that Jesus died for sinners, and yet I still continue to rebel against the Lord and continue to sin against him. And there in that moment in reading Hosea, I saw it like never seen it before, the incredible love of Christ Jesus towards sinners and even like a sinner as my, such as myself. And even then, it took years after that to really comprehend to really understand the magnitude of that love of God in Christ towards me. But it was that very love 
that Christ Jesus shows towards sinners, that forgiving love, that gracious love. Do you remember it? Do you remember when you first came to sense that wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That sense of wonder and knowing that your sins have been forgiven. Though you yourself might have felt that you're the last person who deserves such grace. That sense of wonder never, never, ever gets boring in Christ Jesus. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? If only we had more time to consider more deeply the breadth of the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But time compels me to continue to move us ahead in the rest of our passage and into our next heading, which is the tragedy of false conversions. Kind of a, certainly a much more bitter and sour heading than the last one we considered. Nevertheless, I think it is a point to consider as we consider what's happening here in the passage. So we see that Simon, the magician himself, believes, and he is even baptized and continues to follow Philip. But then we see something here that as he's seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. He was amazed. Simon was a kind of anti-anti-apostle. Like the scriptures tell us about an anti-Christ or the anti or anti-Christ. He was a kind of anti-apostle. One who was also performing signs and wonders through sorcery. And we see in the scriptures there's other examples where these kinds of things are actually possible. And he's performing these things. He's even claiming himself to be somebody great. Even the people who are amazed and bedazzled by Simon say that this is the power of God. Or that this man is the power of God that is called great. This is some kind of divine person. This is somebody or at least has some kind of divine connection to the divine. Church history and some of the writings of the early church, such as John Chrysostom, actually tell us but Simon, the magician, is considered to be sort of the, the father of all Gnostic heresies. Gnosticism is this idea that, this, that somebody could receive divine or secret revelation or secret knowledge through mystical experiences. That only a select few have this sort of divine or secret knowledge. And this is how they gather crowds and followers And we see actually in church history that he continues with his magic after these events. In fact, he actually, as another way of bedazzling people with his magic, he even self, self says, I will 
have myself buried, and after three days I will rise from the dead. He never kept that promise. Now he continues to be amazed now by the signs and miracles that Philip is doing. And then Peter and John, the apostles, come from Jerusalem and they go to Samaria. It says they lay their hands on the believers and they receive the Holy Spirit. Simon, when Simon saw this, and by that I mean that when the Spirit actually came to descend, it seems like there was some kind of physical manifestation that the Spirit of God had descended, most probably seen in the speaking of tongues. So when Simon himself saw this, he offered to pay money for the authority to call down the Spirit of God so that anyone he lays his hands on can receive the Spirit of well and of as well, and he is immediately rebuked and even cursed by Peter. And what we're seeing about Simon is that he has been much more captivated by some of the theatrics of the signs and miracles and not really bedazzled and amazed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and sins forgiven. He's in the gall of bitterness, Peter says. This is a man who's become lustful, to amazement, to be dazzling. He wants to continue in his works and he wants the Spirit of God to do that. He wants to sort of traffic the Spirit, use it for his own purposes. He becomes, in a, you could say, even envious of what the apostles are doing. So Simon has not ceased being spellbound by even his own works. And he, he seeks to continue in those magic arts. So Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain this gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Pronounces a curse, may you perish with your silver. But he doesn't leave him without a solution. He says, repent. Repent and pray that your sins may be forgiven, that your heart may be forgiven. That's the only way out. Otherwise, you have no lot or part in this matter, not in just what's happening right now, but you have no lot or part in the church. And so here is one who has believed and even baptized, but then it becomes clear he has not actually been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, and actually believed wholeheartedly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And someone might ask, well, maybe the apostles should have waited a period of time to baptize him and others. But they did it immediately. And as well they should. And that is because for being a Christian back then is very different than being a Christian today. To be a Christian back then most likely meant you would lose something or many things. You might lose friends. You might lose family. You might lose your social standing. You might lose the respect of your peers and those around you. You might lose your job. And so when somebody believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ back then, it was actually a very big deal considering the cost. Today, there's some wisdom in waiting a period of time. We don't go immediately in baptizing someone. I guess it depends 
on the person. But now today, there isn't very much to lose in being a Christian, though that is, I believe, quickly changing. You're probably not going to lose friends. You're probably not going to lose five members. You're probably not going to lose your job. That, again, it's all, I think, changing now. But as a church, as elders in the church have the responsibility, we have the responsibility right, to be careful about who comes into the membership of the church. That's why we ask certain questions. We ask, how do you, what do you understand about the gospel? What is the gospel? Tell me your testimony. How were you saved? Tell me about your baptism. These are sort of questions that we try to find answers to, to be able to understand, does this person have an understanding of the gospel, and have they truly believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the last thing that elders in the church want is to bring into its membership, into the household, those who may be actually falsely converted, who actually don't believe in the gospel, whose life hasn't been transformed by the gospel. And so even when it comes to someone who has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a measure of wisdom and perhaps waiting a period of time to see how the fruit of that faith bears out. That's certainly you can get to a point where you're perhaps waiting too long. You don't want to wait too long. But there is, I'm saying, it's just a measure of wisdom in waiting. And it's in part because we want to be careful of having false conversions in the membership of the church because the scriptures make a distinction. There is those who are a household of the faith, those who are sort of seated together in the banquet of Christ Jesus, and there are those who are still outside of that banquet, who are still welcomed to visit, who are welcomed to observe and even to some degree engage in that fellowship of the church, but as long as they have yet to believe in the gospel, they remain outside the table. And what we don't want is to invite somebody into the table who has yet to make that profession of faith. Because what happens is that when a church has amongst its membership those who may be falsely converted, is that then the church is no longer characterized by holiness, but becomes characterized by worldliness. And when the church is characterized by worldliness, the witness of the church is, stained, is tainted, the grace of the gospel is cheapened, the fellowship of the church is confused, and the wonder of the gospel is smeared. So I do not believe that Simon actually was converted. Church history tells us that he actually was not because of what he continues to do afterwards. We see here that he continues to be amazed, trying to traffic the Spirit of God. And when it comes to Peter's exhortation or rebuke, and give him, him the solution, repent and pray to the Lord, in turn he asked Peter to pray for him. He is fearful of the consequences that Peter has actually pronounced over his life. And it's right that he should be. 
but he becomes more concerned with his potential outcome than he is by the fact that Jesus does forgive sin and does not go to Jesus himself and pray for the forgiveness of his sins. Fourth and lastly, by way of conclusion, the gift of the Spirit and some concluding remarks. We read in the passage that when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, why exactly did it happen in this way? Why, we believe that the Spirit of God descends and indwells a person immediately when they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we see happening here is actually not prescriptive. It's not sort of a regular pattern. But if you continue to read the rest of the New Testament, it is actually immediate. Believing, trusting in Christ Jesus, submitting, surrendering your life to Christ Jesus, one is immediately indwelt by the Spirit of God, but this wasn't the case here. Why is that? And a few reasons why that might be a, this might be a different case. Number one, the, end, the gospel was entering into new territory. It was, entering the, it was entering in Samaria. And we see actually in the book of Acts when the gospel enters new territory, the apostles are called upon to lay hands that the people of God may receive the Spirit. Another reason why we see it played out in this way is because the apostles have been sent by God, by Jesus himself specifically, or particularly, to be a kind of foundation builders for the church. And so it was helpful for the apostles, commissioned by Jesus himself, to go into this new territory, see the believers there, witness before their own eyes, and sort of personally extend the right hand of fellowship you too are included in the household of faith. So, as we consider these things, as we consider the wonder of the gospel, as we consider our tendency to be bedazzled even out of the gospel of Jesus Christ by worldliness, what we are after, in a way, is maintaining a childlike sense of wonder to where the gospel, like a child who sees a, a squirrel and every time is amazed, that we maintain a similar childlike sense of wonder to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we continue to visit that Grand Canyon of the gospel and continue to be bedazzled and continue to be amazed but at the same time, we are after sort of a growing or maturation of our sense of wonder because we don't want to be easily bedazzled by everything in the world. And the way to do that is to remain grounded in your sense of wonder at sins forgiven in Christ Jesus. By way of action, repentance is a way of keeping your attention fixated on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repentance is turning away from worldliness, turning away from the bedazzling and the theatrics and the dramatics of the world, 
and maintaining a fixedness on the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we fail to repent of our sins, it means that we have become more enamored or wooed by the things of the world. It is a life of repentance that we're after because we want to keep fixated on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Another way you might consider is beholding and glorifying Christ in the ordinary. Reminded of the experience of Elijah. In 1 Kings, I, I don't think I have this up on the screen for you to follow along with me. But in 1 Kings 19, verses 9 through 12, Elijah is running for his life. He finds himself refuging in a mountain. In verse 9, 1 Kings 19, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. But when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And there he heard the voice of the Lord asking again, Elijah, what are you doing here? Notice the theatrics. God can be very theatrical. You see this, I mean, just read the scriptures. He performs great deeds. He performs amazing things. And what we see in the mountain is here. We see the fire. We see the earthquake. We see the strong winds tearing at the mountain. But the Lord, it tells us, is not in those things. Instead, God visits with Elijah in a still, small whisper. Not in the bedazzling things, but in the smallest things. I was struck by these words by G.K. Chesterton. And they have been sort of in my mind all week long. G.K. Chesterton writes, Grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible, get this, it is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. The repetition in our nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be theatrical encore. Do you get that? Maybe, if we have a tendency to think that even something as monotonous as we may consider it, the rising of the sun, as if it's something on a, sort of a, on automatic, it's on autopilot, everything is on autopilot. But, Jesus, but Chesterton sort of confronts 
that assumption or that idea and says, what if it's not that way? What if every single day God is saying to the sun, rise? And every day is saying, sun, set, and it sets. What if God is not leaving the daisies and the roses to bloom on their own on autopilot? What if he is commanding them every single day, rise and bloom? And so it does because it does what it's commanded. And even then, to us, that might seem pretty repetitive, pretty monotonous. But to God, it isn't. And it's in those things that we might consider monotonous or repetitive that we, if we're willing to consider and look, see the wonder of God. Job 5, 8 it says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Job is capturing the wonder of God, who does unsearchable and marvelous things things that we might consider, we might, if we didn't have the rest of the passage, we might ask ourselves, what are those marvelous things? What are those unsearchable things? What are those amazing things? But he goes on to say they're actually quite ordinary things, such as the rain falling on the earth. This is why I mean by maintaining a childlike sense of wonder, that the things that we might consider repetitive or monotonous actually might not be so boring if we consider that God has a hand in it all. It's one quick thing I also want to mention to you before we transition and worship the Lord through communion. It's a passage in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and all the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And it's a, it's a quote, actually, from the book of Isaiah. And if you consider the passage in its context there, the, the Lord says the word wonder three times. How will he return his people to himself through wonder? And if you take that passage and let that sort of illumine to you what Paul is saying here in this passage, he seems to be saying that God will perform wondrous things that will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning he will bring to nothing. What is this wondrous thing? It is the preaching of the gospel. Consider how were you saved? It wasn't through dramatics. It wasn't through theatrics. You didn't see something spectacular in the sky. It's not like you were dead and buried in the ground and then came alive again, again miraculously. It was nothing like that at all. You were saved by the gospel of Jesus, hearing it preached or reading it perhaps in a book. What do we give ourselves to each and every week? is the, the ordinariness of the church gathering where we sing, where we pray, 
that we sit under the preached word. We're not looking to be bedazzled by theatrics. We're not looking for lights and sounds. We're not looking to see something that we have never seen before because God intends to meet with his people in the ordinary. The things that we might might even become bored by. Even something as simple as words written in a page, God intends to meet with his people in something as ordinary as a book. So hold on to a childlike sense of wonder because God intends to show and reveal himself and remind you of himself through the ordinary. But continue to devote your life to repentance so that you might grow also in your sense of wonder to become less bedazzled by the things of the world in maintaining a childlike sense of wonder to Jesus Christ and sins forgiven. With that being said,